under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to be. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Welcome, folks, to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I am flying solo tonight. It's fitting. So I announced earlier, I got tragic news today. That's sinking in slowly. I'll try not to become maudlin here on air, but um, my grandmother, Helen, my father's mother, has passed away today. It's not unexpected. It's something we knew was coming. In some ways, it's mercy. But you can't help but have all sorts of memories come to mind. You can't help it. I was, I mean, most closely uh, associated with her. I was closest to her when I was a kid, when she would take care of us. But I always remember her happy. Always remember her smiling. I'm sure she had her down moments. I'm sure she had a rough moments, especially near the end. But um, it makes me feel like a kid. The memories that that come up. I remember her dancing. She was. A, she would teach people to dance. She had her own like you know. Usually people have a work shed in the backyard. They had a dance studio in the backyard. I remember she tried to teach me to dance at it, but I was as talented as she was as a teacher and as patient as she was as a teacher. That's that's a fool's errand trying to teach this white boy here how to how to dance, even some classic steps. But I can't stay on this too long because it'll just uh, bring the whole mood down. Those of you who might have known her. My grandmother, my dad's mother, is Helen Clayton, was Helen Clayton. At least she would go to the Dalreda Baptist Church. Now I'll give more information to the public if people want to go when we know uh, when a service will be held. So that's going on in my own personal life. It's, uh, it's expected, like I said before, but the more it sinks in, it's not... It's never fun. But it's part of life, folks. Death is part of life. Now, I was telling somebody last night on the phone that, uh, honestly, when it comes to my own death, 
Why would I fear that? <laughs> Old Greek philosopher said it really well. I don't know what happens after we die, but you can have faith in what happens. We don't know. An old Greek philosopher said, uh, you know, why should I fear something that by definition is means I'm not there? When death is here, I am not. When I'm here, death is not. But the toughest thing, I think, in this life, in this world, while we have it, is watching somebody who shaped us, who influenced us, whose life led to ours, and who we are, well, watch them end. But hopefully, and with faith, this isn't the end. There's actually a phone call here. Uh, New stock, you're on there. Who's this? Hey, it is Will. Joey, what's happening, bro? Hey, Will. I just want to say, you seem like a dog, man. I appreciate it, man. I really do. Oh, yeah. Never easy. Never and, uh, easy. I'm a good... Well, I, I appreciate it. Thank you, Will. But we're not going to spend all show on that, folks. Because um, the news came in the middle of the day. I really haven't had time to process it. So I don't want to sit here and do that on air. As much as I use this show sometimes as a therapy couch, I'm not going to put you all through that. The big news of the day, even though I'm in all out of sorts personally, uh, family-wise, the big news of the day actually makes me smile. A cheap smile, a smile from the cheap seats. But I have never, ever liked John Bolton, the mustache. I mean, he had some classic hits. And the thing about John Bolton, you know, there's a common thing in American politics, folks, that if somebody disagrees with you, especially somebody in power, they're an idiot, or at least you say they're an idiot. And though different opinions, different worldviews can be baffling, and yes, indeed, some people are just downright dumb, John Bolton was not dumb. And that's the thing about John Bolton. He was somebody I vehemently disagreed with on many issues, and I thought he was dangerous because he was very intelligent and knew how to do his job. The news is Donald Trump tweeted out today that Bolton was asked to resign. He was fired this morning. Here's the tweet from the President of the United States. I disagreed strongly with many of his suggestions, as did others in the administration, and therefore I asked John for his resignation, which was given to me this morning. I thank John very much for his service. The public nature of his White House departure seems to have come as a surprise to John Bolton. Bolton kind of disagreed with the president's version of events. I offered to resign last night, Bolton tweeted, and President Trump said, let's talk about it tomorrow. Trump's mention of differences between Bolton and others in his administration appears to be a reference to the conflict that was rumored and reported between John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Pompeo has been overseeing peace negotiations with the Taliban as a prelude to a U.S. drawdown of troops in Afghanistan. 
a deal that's kind of on the rocks now. But according to reporting from the Washington Post, take that for what it's worth, Bolton has opposed these talks with the Taliban, and he's preferred a unilateral partial withdrawal of U.S. troops. This was not the first disagreement between the ultra-hawkish Bolton and the occasionally more intervention-skeptic Trump. Time and time again, Bolton has appeared to undermine the president's effort to scale back U.S. interventions abroad. For instance, in April 2018, Bolton seemingly attempted to sabotage his boss's peace overtures to North Korea by suggesting that the U.S. would pursue a quote-unquote Libyan model of disarming the country. Not a smart thing to do when you're talking to the paranoid North Koreans, who, as, again, bizarre their worldview may be, they're no dummies. They know exactly what happened to Libya. After Muammar Gaddafi, keeping it pretty straightforward. After 9-11, W said, you're with us or you're against us. Muammar Gaddafi said, I'm with you. I'm with you, uncle. He gave up his nuclear weapons program. Fast forward a few years later, Samantha Power, I believe, is now the national security advisor under Barack Obama. National security advisor being the position John Bolton was just fired from. And she had this whole responsibility to protect doctrine. Well, responsibility to protect from what? Well, never again. No more genocides. Wherever it happens on God's green earth, we, the United States of America, we, the developed, enlightened Western nations of the United Nations, will never again forget and look the other way. We will live up to our responsibility to protect people from mass murder. And this was the case that was made in regard to Muammar Gaddafi when he was facing protest and violent opposition. This in the wake of the Arab Spring that was popping up all over the Middle East. Without U.S. congressional consent, without even a U.N. decree, I believe, really just a call from the Arab League, the U.S. set up what they called a no-fly zone. But we did a little bit more than that. And Muammar Gaddafi ended up dead. This is when Hillary Clinton famously said, We came. We saw. He died. No wonder Bill sleeps around. Anyway, when John Bolton said, we're going to use the Libyan model to disarm North Korea, of course the North Koreans went, wait, so we're going to give up our nukes and then you're going to kill us all? I don't want a bayonet up there the way that Muammar Gaddafi got one. So Bolton almost threw a wrench. Well, he did throw a wrench in those negotiations. And the idea was Bolton was playing bad cop. But apparently it stung President Trump and Mike Pompeo more than we thought. Bolton also helped stall a U.S. exit from Syria. In December 2018, Trump announced that the U.S. would be withdrawing troops 
from Syria, only to have Bolton condition that withdrawal on a Turkish agreement not to attack Kurdish forces in Syria. To be sure, Trump himself has been, at best, erratic and a fair-weather dove. His instincts, I think, are towards this is wasteful spending, this is unwise policy, why are we the policemen of the world, all the things Donald Trump said on the campaign trail. But, you know, once he suggests troop withdrawals one day, he then makes bellicose threats the next. It's sort of the madman theory of geopolitics, keeping people on their toes. Sometimes it works. Sometimes the mixed messages make people behave badly. So far, since we don't have any major wars breaking out, I think Donald Trump has passed. Maybe not with flying colors. If he gets the North Korea deal done... Oh, my Lord. That's a world historic moment. If you get a trade deal with China, that is a major victory for all sorts of parties involved. But so far, Donald Trump has sort of been trying to play into his dovish foreign policy heart, only to have his tune changed by his advisors. Bolton was up there with them. And, for instance, Donald Trump, you have to take him with each particular geopolitical issue. Donald Trump has had no need for any encouragement to be a hostile and to talk tough against Iran. Nevertheless, Bolton clearly helped to raise tensions with Iran during his time in the White House. In May, for instance, Bolton made a very public show of dispatching an aircraft carrier to the Persian Gulf in order to send Iran a clear and unmistakable message of U.S. resolve. Bolton's departure from the White House is being greeted with a collective sigh of relief from non-interventionists, what people who are interventionists like to call isolationists. Good Lord, isn't political language so fun? Just because we don't want to you know, send troops somewhere and bomb certain places, it means we're isolationists. What nonsense. But there are people thankful for Bolton's departure. Of course, you would think certain Democrats who criticize the appointment of Bolton, the National Security Advisor, does not need to be approved by Congress. So they criticized Trump when he appointed Bolton. And now that Bolton has been let go, they're criticizing Trump for somehow being erratic. Maybe it's erratic to you, but actually, if you read the press reports, this was very much the writing on the wall. It's unlikely that Bolton will completely disappear from the scene, however. Having been unceremoniously let go from the Trump administration, it's quite possible Bolton could become a professional Trump critic on cable news. We'll see. But other former Trump administration figures have done as much. On you know, a lesser position, think of the mooch, Anthony Scaramucci. He's now just come out swinging. I guess when somebody's paying your bills, you do their bidding, right, mooch? Still, the fact that Bolton will no longer have a direct role, and it is a powerful position, the National Security Advisor. The fact that he will no longer be in that position to set U.S. foreign policy is a huge win 
for those of us, myself included, count me among them, who think the U.S. should be fighting fewer wars and stop trying to be the policemen of the world. We don't need to be overextended. By the way, you remember that weird, impromptu, outside-the-White-House press conference Bolton gave when Guaido of Venezuela was trying to take over the country? Yeah, it didn't look good, and it looks even worse in retrospect. I think I saw just a few days ago Guaido is going to be uh, tried, or they're going to try to try him for high treason. In many ways, Bolton's departure is a good sign. And we'll see. Apparently, the announcement for the new National Security Advisor will be upon us next week, or at least the president promises us. Now, I want to move from geopolitics to a completely weird story. You know, it's, it's been multiple times in life. There are such, there's such a thing as a, a fair referee, a good umpire, an impartial judge, full of wisdom as well as wit in order to make judgments about everyday activities, whether it's a judge at the federal level, the state level, or it's a judge in sports. Of some sorts. This is a story from Deadspin. I don't often share Deadspin's material, but this story caught my eye. Here's the headline. Teen disqualified from swim meet victory after the referee deemed her suit wedgie inappropriate. Now, as far as I'm concerned, people can swim in the buff if they like. But let's listen to the story here. A talented 17-year-old swimmer at Anchorage Diamond High School in Alaska was disqualified after winning the 100-meter freestyle event on Friday night because the referee overseeing the swim meet said she had violated uniform regulations. The teen's one-piece, one-piece swimsuit had reportedly bunched up and was showing her intergluteal cleft butt crack. This, according to Anchorage Daily News, the disqualification was contested at the meet and drew immediate criticism. This reading directly from Anchorage Daily News, Annette Rode, who was working as an official at the dual meet between Diamond and Chujiak, if that's how you say it, said she froze in disbelief when she saw the disqualification decision by the meet referee who has not been officially identified yet. This official said she questioned the referee about it after the meet. I told her, I need to know how you're defining this because this is going to blow up. She said the official, the referee, uh, replied that the bottom of the girl's suit was so far up I could see her butt cheek touching butt cheek. Well, isn't that what cheeks are supposed to do? South High coach Cliff Murray, a longtime swim coach, said at the beginning of the season that Anchorage High School coaches were told, quote, that as far as the buttocks region goes, you should not be showing any part of the intergluteal cleft. There's no reason or no reference to the intergluteal cleft in the national rule book. So it's not in the rule. It's one of more of those bylaws. Don't be showing your butt. But, you know, sometimes when you're in the heat of competition, 
I'm not, I've never been in swim competitions. I've never been in a swim meet. I don't think I've ever even been to one. But I imagine, you know, since I've been to the beach, I've been to public pools, you know, sometimes people just in the heat of competition, going hard, trying to win, make your school proud, make your parents proud, make yourself proud. Your suit rides up. Your suit rides up. The Anchorage School District released a statement yesterday announcing an investigation into the disqualification. This is just glorious, isn't it? They're reviewing the disqualification of a student-athlete during the September 6th, yada, yada, yada. This qualification appears to stem from a difference of opinion in the interpretation of the rules governing high school swim uniforms. Immediately after the disqualification, the Diamond High School swim coach filed a protest. The coach's protest was quickly denied at the meet, and we expect the coach to appeal. We intend to gather all the facts surrounding the disqualification so we can accurately address the matter with officials and take appropriate action to ensure fair, equitable competition and consistent applications of the rules for this athlete and her peers. Don't you love bureaucratic language? We're looking into, in plain language, we're looking into the fact this chick was disqualified because her swimsuit ran up her butt and the judge had a problem with it. And we're trying to decide if not that's against the rules. Your swimsuit riding up to where you can see your cheeks meeting. A local swim coach, Lauren Langford, a lady, published a post on Medium about the incident. She said that the swimmer in question was wearing a school-issued swimsuit, the same suit that all the other girls in the team were wearing, none of whom were seen a violation. Langford called out the race's motives. Whoa! This story just took a turn because nothing is ever unexpectedly racist today. The racist motives as well, saying the swimmer's sisters had been similarly targeted. The young lady and her sisters are being targeted not for the way they wear their suits, but for the way those suits fit their curvier, fuller-figured bodies. Ah, so this judge just doesn't like somebody with a little bit of a caboose. The issue has come so far unraveled that parents in opposition of these girls and their swimswear have been heard saying that for the sake of their sons, the mother of these young ladies should cover up her daughters. You know, I've been somebody's son. And though, not to bring things down, my mother is no longer with us here. I would say mom, dad... I don't need to be protected from seeing my peers' butts. Like, I'm sorry. This is um, a weird story, to say the least. And it's always interesting when high school nonsense, what seems like really petty bullcrap, gets blown up to a national level. It plays into a narrative, I suppose, but I think at the end of the day, this really... Well, I want to see what the referee who made this call. I want to see what that person's butt looks like. I think the motivation isn't racism per se, but envy. I mean, you go around with a flat backside all your life. And all of a sudden you got to see this person's butt in the middle of a race. I'm going to use the power I have as a referee. But, of course, the swimmer's mother wants her daughter's disqualification overturned, her victory restored, and the referee they've had conflicts with to stay away from officiating her girls' races. And it's not clear here what the race of the uh, young ladies in question are. 
It is, um, it's a w- bit weird, too. Like, when somebody injects uh, sexuality into a conversation, and it's one thing when you make jokes, blah, 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 I do it all the time. But it's one thing when it's just a swim meet of high school kids, high school girls, and all of a sudden the referee's worried about somebody's butt. There's something weird going on there. Anyway... I don't have anything against modesty, but when you're swimming, sometimes that happens, especially if you got a big caboose. Anyway, got to hit this quick break. Coming back, more of the Joey Clark Radio Hour. A story about a couple who spent money in their bank account, and now they're being charged with theft. Tale of Caution, coming up. Joey Clark. Joey Clark. Welcome back, folks. I'm just going to give the game away here. If you find money in your bank account that you did not put there, don't spend it. A Pennsylvania couple were in court Monday on theft charges after they allegedly spent more than a hundred grand wrongfully deposited to their account in a mistake made by their bank. Tiffany and Robert Williams were charged with receiving stolen property, conspiracy to commit theft, and theft after allegedly failing to return 120 grand mistakenly added to their BB&T bank account. The couple used the money to pay off some debts, but also used it on lavish items such as a race car, four-wheelers, and a new SUV and a camper. So they're obviously guilty. It's, it'd be one thing if you spent like 10 bucks and you could say, oh, that was actually my money. But they saw this 120 grand in their account and they're like, let's spend it before it goes away. The luxury spending spree resulted in $107,416 in overdraft fees on the couple's account. Holy crap. The bank attempted to contact the couple about the money, which was deposited into their account in June, but sought legal action after the Williamses or the Williams failed to return the money. Wow. Well, you thought you had hit it big. Our luck's come in. God's smiling on us. Let's spend this money on a camper. Good Lord. Another weird story from a state right next door, Georgia. Focuses on a juvenile court judge, Philip Woodward. He's a judge for Whitfield and Murray counties. He's announced his retirement, but this is a week. He's announcing his retirement a week after a local newspaper revealed he had fired a gun in his office at the at the Whitfield County Courthouse several months earlier. The judge told a sheriff's office deputy who responded to the shot he was just getting a feeling for a new Glock pistol. (laughs) 
Woodward said he took the magazines out and racked it to make sure it was empty. He said when he put the magazine back in, he must have inadvertently chambered around. He then pointed the gun on to the floor under his desk and pulled the trigger. The sheriff's office closed the case administratively without filing any charges. Let's go to the phones, 272-9228. See what this is. News Talk, you're on there. Who is this? Hey, Joey, this is Joel. Hey, Joel. I was going to tell you that happened here in Alabama probably 20 or 30 years ago. A man by the name of Cotton Faggot uh, advised the bank that they had put money in his checking account. Yeah. And it wasn't his, and they... They told him, yeah, it's yours. And he said, no, it's not. He went to him two or three times, told him it wasn't his. So he finally said, well, let me uh, check it out. They checked it out to him, and he got charged by the federal government and spent some time out there at uh, Maxwell, I think. Oh, good Lord. So he actually did his due diligence, say, hey, this isn't mine. We need to look into this? <laughs> two or three different times he did it. Wow. They, and, they, uh, and they charged him. So uh, it, it's not just crazy folks. It's crazy folks here in Alabama, too. Oh, yeah. They're crazy folks all over the place. I'm learning that pretty quickly. Now, we have our own unique types of crazy here in the state of Alabama, as well as like, we, I mean, we're nothing compared to the state of Florida. Don't get me no, wrong. No. But we have our, our, you know, unique types of crazy around here. But, yeah, it was, I, I forgot his Alabama something. Alabama Power had made a deposit in the bank put it in his instead of Alabama Powers. And it was a hundred something thousand, I think. Woo! But, uh, but yeah, anyway, if, if somebody have, put that money in my account, I know there's a mistake. <laughs> yeah. You have a great day. You too, Joel. Appreciate it, man. Okay. Now, I want to continue a theme I started last night. I was talking about the worst regulation in the world being proposed by Mayor Bill de Blasio and strangely and sadly being, a maybe not every detail, but the general idea was agreed to uh, by Tucker Carlson, who interviewed de Blasio about it. The idea of a robot tax, as well as a new federal agency that would protect workers from having their jobs taken by automation. Ugh. And a guy who I even like, Andrew Yang, is big on the campaign trail talking about automation. Yang, for instance, been stout, he's been touting his universal basic income, $1,000 per month for every man, woman, and child here in the United States of America. Though not sure about the children, actually. Anyway, he wants to call it a freedom dividend. Which I actually, let's be honest with you, I like Yang's approach much more. If we're going to take automation as this big boogeyman, this new monster on the horizon we have to slay, I much prefer Andrew Yang's approach than to that of Bill de Blasio. Bill de Blasio is just straight up saying, I'm going to punish innovation. I'm going to punish companies that innovate. At least Andrew Yang is saying, I'm not going to go there what I'm going to do is give people $1,000 so they can get by in the meantime and figure out ways to find a new job or figure out their situation. Just a little bit of a safety net that doesn't have a lot of bureaucratic red tape. $1,000 right there every month. But here's the thing, folks. I think this is all overblown. I've been saying this now for the last few weeks. The idea, though, is machines will replace humans. Artificial intelligence will outpace people. There will be no jobs for the poor. Chaos! Famine! Technology is casting a shadow over our future for humanity. This is the current mainstream outcry. 
Or could we call it paranoia? For instance, let's look at some headlines. We've got some screenshots right here in front of me. From Fortune Magazine in January of this year, AI expert says automation could replace 40% of jobs in 15 years. From BBC News, automation could replace 1.5 million jobs. From Forbes, millions of jobs have been lost to automation. Economists weigh in on what to do about it. From CNBC, robots could take claim to over 20 million jobs by 2030, study claims. And from CNN, the robots are coming for your job too. And these headlines, no doubt, are all very disturbing. And they demonstrate that 2019 has definitely been the year to terrify and scare the crap out of people about technological development. But is there any validity to it? What does the future actually hold for us? Will there be mass unemployment? My guess? No. No, not really. We'll be just fine. Both history and available data today show that far from making working humans obsolete, technology has long been a great job-creating machine. Telephonists and telegraph operators had been happy-clappy for an entire century, from 1871 to 1971. During this period, their number rose by a factor of 40, for instance, in the U.K., then, as a study by economist at the consulting firm Deloitte noted, automated switchboards, the internet, and mobile telephony came up, and the employment in the sector shrank dramatically. Several other professions have faced the same situation. This output derives from what we call creative destruction, where technological change is accompanied by a process through which the old is replaced with the new. It's like the you know, song Lion King. It's the circle of life. But I can't sing. New texts make existing tasks, skills, and occupations obsolete. So should we have cried for telephone and telegraph operators? Should we have tried something, perhaps the government stepping in, state intervention, to save their jobs? No. Wrong. Where a machine replaces a human... The outcome in time is economic growth and rising employment. How does this happen, though? It seems counterintuitive. Well, innovation boosts jobs in other sectors, especially but not exclusively in knowledge-intensive ones. Lumberjacks, milkmen, movie projectionists, typesetters, and video store clerks did disappear due to technological advances. But do not panic. Technology also created a host of new positions that never existed before. Think about it. Computing specialists, social media managers, digital marketers, um, energy engineers, software and app developers, drone operators, YouTube content creators. How many people are working today in areas that did not exist 50 years ago? And this seems to be an unstoppable trend. A report by the Institute for the Future estimated, well, that's a good institute. What's your institute about? We're for the future. They estimated that nothing less than 85% of the jobs that will exist in 2030 haven't even been invented yet. The future is on its way. But it's quite clear, it's unquestionable even, that machines have been taking on more repetitive and laborious tasks and routine manual jobs suffer most because machinery can readily serve as a substitute for human labor. 
By contrast, innovations seem no closer to eliminating the need for a human brain and hands in cognitive non-routine tasks, where technology is highly complementary and employment growth has been strong. For instance, according to research by two smart people, do you really care? No, but you can look it up. Reinventing jobs is a study. They write in this study, Reinventing Jobs. In 1985, the U.S. had 60,000 ATMs and 485,000 bank tellers. By 2002, the number of ATMs had increased from 60,000 to 352,000. Was this bad for humans? Nope, not at all. The number of human bank tellers also spiked to 527,000, an increase. So innovation does not always mean the extinction of jobs that are eventually replaced by new ones. Technology can also represent a complement, an assistance to the current workforce at the workplace. It has to be stressed, though, folks. Has to be. All jobs lost in outpaced fields due to technological development are recovered by a large margin in new areas. If you're still suspicious about that, let's prove the point. Because it's fine to be suspicious. If it is true that technology blew away jobs in agriculture, cleaning, routine factory operations, construction, and mining, it is also true that innovation gave birth to information technology managers whose number have has risen by a factor of 6.5 to over 327,000 in the last decade, plus programmers and software development professionals. By the way, the direct job-creating role of technology is relatively clear and well-known. What is less obvious is the way it affects knowledge-based and using sectors knowledge-using sectors, such as medicine, education, business, communication, like this business, and professional services, increasing employment over time. It is no wonder that since 1880, the top fastest-growing occupations around the world have been in the service sectors. Most of the sponsors we have here, for instance, folks, at Blue Water Broadcasting here on News Talk 93.1 FM are people in the service sector. That's most of the people. Most of the people who are employed right now in this economy are working in the service sector. And this trend's been going on for a long time. Actually, I believe the service sector overtook agriculture and the industrial economy in like the 1800s. You can check that, but it's counterintuitive, I know. We have such a limited perspective, and I'm guilty of that often as well. But this isn't just a phenomenon unique to developing countries. Even emerging countries can enjoy the fruits of this process as long as they invest in technology. Brazil's a good example. Since the middle of the 1980s, the country has put into play a series of measures to accelerate the pace of technological progress. What was the result? In two decades, from 95, 1995 to 2014, the number of Brazilians employed increased from 23 short, just short of 24 million to just short of 50 million. However, other people do not have the same luck. According to the National Bureau of Statistics, only 10.8% of Nigeria's total working population is actually registered to work. And about 50% of the current workforce is engaged in subsistence agriculture. Stepping back from all these numbers I'm throwing at you because, well, 
honestly, when I hear somebody throw a bunch of numbers at me, I can sometimes have my eyes glaze over. When I think about the economy, what is the point of an economy? And this is where politics, especially American politics, has gotten a lot wrong. But of course, American politics is run by the people, so to speak. If you don't think that's right, well, listen to your politicians. They don't always do what you want them to do, but who are they always talking to? You, the people. And honestly, the people are so diverse in their different interests and what they want that it's very hard to have a politician that's going to call it like it is. Because if you had to talk to every single interest and entertain every single different perspective of all your different constituents, you're of course going to sound like a hypocrite because people, even within a small congressional district, disagree. But what have the people always demanded? What have the politicians always sold the folks? It's a three-letter word, as Joe Biden said. Jobs. (laughs) J-O-B-S. Good Lord. Joe Biden is not going to be the next president. But this idea, from a political perspective, that the role of the economy is to create jobs. No. It's not the role of an economy. We need jobs that actually provide the services and goods that people want. We need an economy that serves people's needs. And we need to, if you need some form of making a living, you create a job, yes. The general idea is providing to the consumer. Highest possible quality at the lowest possible price. It's not all about price. Because sometimes you can have really low prices and the product is crap. The service isn't very good, so you're not going for bottom-of-the-barrel prices. This is all fairly common-sense stuff. But I, I find it a, a weird fascination, and I, maybe it's not that weird. People want to have some means of making a living. What I find weird is that we de- demand of our politicians to provide us with jobs. And again, it's falling back into this idea of we can only... What we need as Americans isn't liberty, isn't justice. No, liberty and justice for all is just something we have our kids say every day before school, putting their hand over their heart, saying the nation's indivisible. Again, just something we have the children say. Really what we want in this country is comfort and security. And we don't want to have to worry about it ourselves. We want the politicians to give us a bunch of happy talk that they're going to help us do it. It is uh, strange times that we live in. Indeed, very, very strange times. <sighs> I have to admit, folks, my heart's a little heavy. I'm, I'm just now processing uh, the loss of my grandmother. It's not exactly a fun idea. It just keeps popping back into my mind. It's not a, It's not a fun idea at all. But it's part of life, as I said earlier. So let me find something here to close out the show that can cheer me up a little bit. I like to occasionally look at the the work of my good friend Jeffrey Tucker, and I bring that to you folks. He writes today that years ago he was working in Sweet Home, Alabama. And a maintenance man here in Alabama very sweetly gave him a jar of white liquor, that white lightning, as a gift. 
This gentleman explained that it was made by a family friend and far better and healthier than that government liquor. Initially confused, my friend Jeffrey figured out what he meant by that phrase. Anything sold in a package store. Stay away from that stuff, the gentleman said. So, breaking bad, I tried a spoonful of moonshine. That was more than enough. My friend Jeffrey's lips burned for an hour after that. Didn't know at the time, but this moonshine was just the beginning of one of America's booming industries. Artisanal beverages, they are called. See, when you come into the mainstream, out from the shadows, you gotta have some snappy marketing. You can't just call it white lightning and liquor. You gotta call it artisanal beverages. This covers breweries, distilleries, wineries, and cideries. The growth has been phenomenal. It really has over the last 10 years. All began with Jimmy Carter's great act. This is the thing. Jimmy Carter, not a great president, but he did do a wonderful thing. Thank God for Jimmy Carter. Thought you'd never hear that. Jimmy Carter deregulated breweries. Thank you, President Carter, for that wonderful act. Since then, the industry has boomed especially recently, took a few years. But double-digit growth in the number of distillers is now normal. Wine is the same. There are 8,000 breweries in the U.S. today, compared with one-tenth of that 25 years ago. Cideries seem poised for another big expansion. It's fair to say this is a craze, and an awesome craze it is. So my friend Jeffrey set out with friends this past Sunday to visit as many as possible in Hudson Valley, New York. He made it to seven, which is about 3% of the some 20, 3% of them in some 20 square miles. His friend joked, basically, if you knock on any door in Hudson Valley, they will try to sell you their artisanal beverage. It's only slightly an exaggeration. And apparently many of these are just mind-blowing from all sorts of types. Like, for instance, a rhubarb-based vodka. Ask the owner, server, distiller, what is the difference between what he does and what moonshiners in the South do? His answer came back quick. I have a license. <laughs> so, you know, I was at a party the other day. Somebody let me try some of their homemade stuff. It was great. It's great. And that answer from that licensed distiller up in New York State really does sum it up. But here's what's strange. Most of these wonderful places you can't sell. Most of these wonderful places can't sell you anything from your liquor store. The restrictions on crossing state lines are, well, egregious. And sending the stuff in the mail bumps into countless restrictions. There is a strange sense in which many of these institutions still have the feel of being speakeasies, except they're legal. They can legally exist, but their customer base is mostly restricted locally. For instance, try some amazing gin out of Harvest Springs in the Hudson Valley, New York. It's a very interesting drink. You can completely imagine it would be a huge hit with customers all around the country at liquor stores and gin bars. No such luck, though. The company can't even let this stuff cross the state line into Massachusetts. The regulations prevent that. And why is this? 
This country has a long and strange relationship with the private production of alcoholic beverages. If you ever think that this land of the free is a perfectly normal country, never forget that the production and consumption of alcohol was banned by constitutional amendment between 1919 and 1933. Prohibition was based on the finest settled science of the day. Sound familiar, right? It went like this. There are a lot of social problems out there, such as absentee fathers, early death, lazy workers, broken families, and derelicts strewn all over the big cities. The social scientists examined each of these problems and found a common denominator, the liquor. So the thinking went. The answer is rather obvious. Ban the stuff and you get rid of the problem. So pervasive was this theory in the late progressive era that you dared not contradict the claims lest you be accused of defending the evil liquor industry or being a drunkard yourself. The handful of people who spoke out against the zany push had to clarify that they themselves do not indulge lest they be instantly discredited. And so it happened. We were suddenly Saudi Arabia. And still, the remnants of prohibition exist. There are still blue laws. Some counties don't allow private liquor sales. We have absurd age restrictions on drinking, which have driven college kids to turn their campus experience into one big speakeasy. With kids unsafely hiding and binging in dorm rooms, frat houses, and private homes endangering everyone. This is how they learn to drink. And it's not civilized at all. And I'm seeing the same prohibitionist crap when it comes to vaping. Is it a problem that somebody vapes something and they all of a sudden they die? Yes. They, they get sick. They get some lung disease. Yes. But why not be specific about what is actually causing this? Black market, illicit vape cartridges. It's almost like back when alcohol was prohibited, people were getting probably getting sick from black market spirits, alcohol, bathtub gin, so to speak. Interesting. Interesting. Now, you know, sometimes black market producers don't want to harm you. But sometimes, well, they're just people looking to make a buck and they don't give a damn about who they're selling to, how they end up with their health. At the end of the day, folks, it's better if freedom rules the day and people make their own decisions but of course you could disagree but then you good for you good for you you speak for society and you're willing to force everybody to your will how civilized that does it for the joey clark radio hour it was a show Joey Clark.